0: I consider myself to be very extreme in my views, but also quite pragmatic. And I think most neoliberals may have very far out views about certain things, but most of us tend to be quite pragmatic about prioritizing the ones that are really important, bargaining with people on the ones that are less important.
1: This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Oliver Wiseman, CapEx's editor. If someone uses the word neoliberal in a political debate, chances are they're using it as a term of abuse. But in recent years, a small but growing group have tried to reclaim the word, transforming an insult left-wingers hurl at free marketeers into something more meaningful. My guest this week is a member of that group. As well as being one of the most persuasive advocates of neoliberalism, Sam Bowman is a font of interesting and thought-provoking opinions on a wide range of policy questions. Until a few years ago, Sam worked at the Adam Smith Institute. Now he works at the consultancy Fingleton Associates. He's also an occasional CapEx contributor. I began by asking him a simple question. What is a neoliberal?
0: I think that a neoliberal is somebody who thinks that markets are very good at creating wealth, but not always very good at distributing wealth. So in policy terms, it's people who generally favour deregulation um, and maybe quite simple taxes and maybe quite a limited government but are quite comfortable with quite a high degree of redistribution from the rich to the poor.
1: And so that's, so, so, so. the distribution thing is the big dividing line between, um, between neoliberals like you and your traditional libertarian. Or...
0: Yeah, although, I mean, so I, I don't claim that I can uh, you know, t- tell people you, you are a neoliberal or you aren't a neoliberal. Mm-hmm. For me, I wanted to describe um, when I wrote this piece, sort of asserting that I'm a neoliberal and, and like, this is what I think a neoliberal is. What I was trying to do uh, there is, rather than kind of argue for neoliberalism, but more try to say, this is, I think, a a body of thought that a lot of people have, but doesn't have a name for it yet. I'm kind of identifying a thing that's already out there. And so in addition to this, basically being quite pro-market, quite comfortable with redistribution, and on that point, on the redistribution point, we can maybe come back to it, but I believe that, for example, Milton Friedman, even though you wouldn't think of him as being somebody who is really pro-redistribution, I think that, in fact, a lot of his policies like school vouchers and the negative income tax um, acknowledged quite a large degree of redistribution and the question was about how you should do it. But in addition to things like that, there are things like kind of globalism, um, in the sense that people uh, who are neoliberals tend to weigh the value of foreigners very highly compared to uh, most other people. Most, most other people think, well, immigration, we, we, de- we decide what the good immigration policy is mm-hmm. based on what, how it affects us. Whereas I think most neoliberals think, well, that's important, but it's also really important as to how it affects the migrants and how it affects the countries they come from. And so that's why neoliberals perhaps are a little bit impatient with um, the immigration debate that we have in the West. But there are a few other things. I generally think neoliberals are quite utilitarian or consequentialist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they generally try to be um, more ideologically flexible about the policies they favor. Um, I don't want to say they're kind of more open-minded or more evidence-based or less dogmatic. They would like to think of themselves that, in right. that way. They um, value those. They value those things, yeah. Right. And so I think it's, the, it's this sort of bundle of um, things that sort of separate them from progressives or from what people might call moderates or centrists or um, obviously from libertarians or conservatives on the right.
1: And you, you, um, you know, at the time you sort of came out as a neoliberal, you did so when you were working at the Adam Smith Institute, um, and I think the Adam Smith Institute is a, now describes itself as a neoliberal think tank rather than a libertarian one. Um, so do you want to just describe kind of your conversion to the cause, as it were? Or, sure, or, yeah. You
0: know, yeah. Well, I personally always um, thought that libertarianism kind of needed a, um, or at least needed to be open to a redistributive mechanism. And I, for a long time, spent a lot of time sort of arguing, well, look, if Milton Friedman's a libertarian, then it must be, you know, if, if we define a libertarian as Milton Friedman, and almost yeah. everybody agrees that Milton Friedman, I mean, he did, uh, could be described as a libertarian. Hayek, most people, he didn't really call himself a libertarian, but most people think of him as being a libertarian or as sort of somebody in that tradition, both of them were quite comfortable with quite a lot of redistribution. And I found that many, many of the policy debates that I was having with people, you could tell that the underlying view was it's this or it's nothing else. So maybe we could talk about tuition fees uh, for university. The, the debate there was really, um, or, or uh, I don't know, payments for healthcare. care, um, the debate was the debate I don't want to have, which is mm-hmm. should government pay for your tuition or your health care or should it do nothing um, or should it kind of give you basically nothing? And I thought that it was a much more interesting question. Given a certain amount of money, if, if, give it, if we kind of take as a given that people who are poor have a have this sort of supplemental income, um, then what's the best way to spend that? We could spend it by force through the state or we could spend it by just letting them spend the money. And in many cases, I think, it, was a, it, it allows you to um, reframe the debate and think more clearly about what was really up for grabs, which is who decides how this money is spent rather than should this money be spent at all on this if people want it. Um, so at the ASI, the Adam Smith Institute, um, we had been calling ourselves libertarians, and um, I think that was very successful in, in the sense that it allowed us to differentiate ourselves from other think tanks, obviously the Centre for Policy Studies... Mm-hmm the Taxpayers' Alliance, the Institute of Economic Affairs, all of whom were kind of center-right. Sometimes people would say Thatcherite, and that was kind of... We were allergic to the word Thatcherite right. because we just we didn't want to be thought of as being... I mean, that's, that's just not our brand, and that's just not who we are. Um, so libertarian worked to some extent, but the problem with libertarian, I found increasingly, was that it was associated with a kind of very radical American Ron Paul type of uh, mm-hmm. approach to policy. And I thought neoliberal... It's not ideal, but in a way, what makes it not ideal is kind of what strength of it as well. Neoliberal is typically used as a slur, mm. um, increasingly on the left, to kind of attack other people within the left that they disagree with. But um, it's long been a kind of slur for people who like markets because it sounds a bit sinister and nefarious. And I thought, well, it's been kind of better to sound sinister and nefarious than it is to sound crazy and fringe, which is the problem with libertarian. And um, so we, we made that shift. I think it went quite well we got quite a lot of attention for it quite a lot of people seem to have agreed with me that there is this kind of body of people or this body of thought that didn't really have a word for it before a lot of people disagreed with using neoliberal they kind of thought maybe you should use a more benign word like Mm. liberal or something or Mm -hmm. classical liberal but um
1: i think it was the right decision and neoliberalism i mean you mentioned it's sort of sort of reclaiming an insult in many ways um and the people that use that word as an insult would claim that neoliberalism has been the dominant ideology in the West for yeah. decades, I mean, half a century, yeah. basically. And I agree with that. And them. you agree with that? Yeah, well, exactly. So, th-
0: so that, was, that was another um, consideration. Mm. If we're, we're clearly living through a period where everybody hates the status quo. Um, we're clearly not going to win many arguments just by telling people the status quo is really good. But having said that... Um, there's something a little bit fake about saying, well, you know, this this world system that we've got where we've had these massive deregulations, we've had this massive opening up of markets, especially in Asia, um, and we've also had this massive growth and this massive reduction in poverty and this massive kind of equalizing of, of people's opportunities around the world. Um, well, we're, not, we're, we're against that too, just like you. You know, It's a little mm-hmm. bit fraudulent, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also so, so it doesn't really come across well. I don't think it really is that persuasive to people. Oh, you know, I'm just like you. I don't like crony capitalism, yeah. which is, I think, the approach that some people want to take. Um, but also, you can't really have it both ways. You either get to defend what's happened in the last 40 years or you don't get to defend it. And you can say it could be better, um, but if you want to claim the last 40 years... Uh, which I think have been a pretty good 40 years by the standards of human history, then you need to be upfront about it. So part of it was saying, okay, if this is the neoliberal world that we're living in, then I'm happy about that. I like the neoliberal world. Uh, It could be better, and I'm going to propose ways of making it better. But generally, I'm going to defend it. And um, it seems to me that there aren't that many people willing to defend what's... Apart from, for for example, Stephen Pinker, Mm -hmm. um, who who, uh, I don't know if I would call him a neoliberal, but I don't know enough about his politics, but he does certainly try to defend the last kind of 40 years or so um and i'm glad about that and i think more people should do that because it's not been very bad and in in many ways it's been amazingly good possibly in terms of poverty reduction on growth the best 40 years in human history so let's defend it and let's embrace
1: it so let's um but let's let's talk about some of the improvements that you i mean if you're if you're a uh Look, I don't, you don't have to speak for all the neoliberalists, sure, right? But yeah. if you're Sam Bowman... Yeah, 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 yeah oh, just I'm happy to th- speak for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, <you> know, <laughs> w- what are the ways in which you think that over that period of time policy's got things really badly wrong and, and you know, ways in which I, ma- I imagine you know, the market is not used in the way... You know, in the UK, in the
0: UK um, and in most of the English-speaking world, the number one policy failure is and has been land use regulation, um, just beyond everything else. Um, because land use regulation... In the UK, it's for Town and Country Planning Act, plus the kind of rules that we have inside cities about what you can build and where and how high you can build and things like that. They, people think of this just in terms of house prices, um, and that's natural, because it, the primary effect is, or the most direct effect, is that you don't build enough houses, so houses are really expensive, and housing costs are really high as well. Um, uh, you know, rents, rents uh, are very high. The second order of FET, though, I think is much more important, which is that it restricts people's ability to move where they want to and move uh, where they would be most productive. Um, So what that means is that because it's really, really difficult to move to Cambridge, for example, it's incredibly expensive to move to Cambridge, we're missing out on a huge amount of extra productivity that could come if it was really easy to get there. We know that cities are more productive, and we know that they get more productive the bigger they are because you can basically match people to each other more Mm -hmm. easily. And that kind of agglomeration effect that you get uh, is being held back almost everywhere in the prosperous areas of the UK. There are no prosperous, really prosperous cities that are not really, really expensive to live in in the UK. Now, that's a cost in terms of productivity. It's also, in a kind of a more loose sense, a cost in terms of innovation because the places that are most innovative, um, the kind of clusters that we might have around universities like Oxford and Cambridge and also in London, um, are the places that's most difficult for people to move to. So there's a huge second-order effect in terms of productivity. I mean, in the U.S., the um, estimate is absolutely gargantuan in terms of how much lost productivity there's been. Um, you know, I mean, we're talking about maybe 14% extra productivity growth just by liberalizing planning laws in cities like San Jose and um, San Francisco and so on. And in the U.K., it wouldn't surprise me if it was even bigger than that. So land use is the biggest one. Um, I think the way we do taxation is pretty bad. I don't mind very much the level of taxation, but uh, we have an incredibly messy system that um, I don't think anybody would design from the bottom up. In particular, the way we tax capital investment, um, basically the way we tax corporation mm-hmm. tax, means that you can deduct envelopes and uh, salaries, but you can't deduct, uh, to the to 100% at least, capital expenditure. So businesses don't invest in capital nearly as much as they should. Mm-hmm. And, and I think... Uh, that's kind of the lowest hanging fruit in terms of tax policy. Um, I also I mean the, the final one that I think is just absolutely enormous is immigration controls and um, in the developed world there's a huge amount of pent up uh, demand for people to move from poorer countries to richer countries and that doesn't mean totally open borders, it doesn't mean you know, we, don't, we don't get to say who comes in but because we have this um, and, and this is in some ways related to the land use problem mm. because it's there are, there are zero sum effects or negative sum effects even from immigration, um, but because we restrict this so much, we're missing out on again a huge amount of productivity just by allowing people to kind of unlock talents that they that they really can't in somewhere like Bangladesh, but might be able to in somewhere like London.
1: Um, so let's let's go through some of those, uh, starting with housing, which I'm glad you mentioned because um, in the capex office we have a running joke that you, pretty much any policy article we start, we can end it with. Uh, a, a paragraph about the town and country planning. Yeah, I mean, it's, how it's it
0: amazing how many, how many things it affects. You yeah. know? Think about almost every policy yeah. area. Yeah. I mean, whether it's like competition or education or healthcare, mm. almost everything is exacerbated mm. by the fact that we don't... And, and, and you, I mean, you're focusing on housing for obvious reasons, but the fact just that... Land we, the land use in fact general, that, Yeah, right. you can't... I mean, and, and one of the persistent questions, I think, in political economy it's very interesting is um, why is the UK so unproductive relative to someone like Germany or France, given that we have, for, in most areas, we have a much more liberal labour market, for example. Um, we have very, very, uh, m- I mean, much better competition regimes than, than um, France anyway. And yet, we're really unproductive compared to them. We're only about as productive as France is, um, and by some measures we're less productive. I think the reason, that's pretty clear the reason, is the Town and Country Planning Act, and the, the fact that, okay labor is reasonably uh liberalized capital is re- reasonably liberal liberalized excuse me but land is basically running this soviet planning system and it's crazy so yeah you're right almost every subject could become a lot easier and a lot more easy to make kind of win-win if we could reform the planning system but it's almost impossible to do yeah that. I, I think
1: it's also a useful subject to um tease out some of the Sort of what these neoliberalism versus some other ideologies. Yeah. Because if you were to talk to a conservative about this, about about this, let's say pro market um, conservative, I guess one of the, I guess just I mean I'll test it on you. but yeah. A couple of the points of difference would be that you would be much less interested in um, home ownership levels. You'd be much more interested in just the, the cost of housing yeah. as a yeah. as a ex- living expense. Yeah. And you'd be less interested in. Um, the related stuff to do with sort of family, community, and, and so well, like.
0: I'm 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 very interested in um, the impact on the birth rate. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the, uh, the Adam Smith Institute did a paper um, about a year ago that argued that people are delaying having children and they're having fewer children because housing costs are so high that basically just the cost of yeah. getting a room or the cost of getting a big a big enough house means that people people leave it till much later in life and kind of relatedly they then have fewer kids. So if people want to have kids. Uh, I want them to be able to have kids. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Um, I think family formation is quite a personal thing, and mm-hmm. I'm kind of a libertarian, or uh, in that way, that I, I don't want to project certain forms of family onto people. And probably conservatives disagree, but I do agree that um, the impact on fertility is a really big problem.
1: And on the, <clears throat> on, the, and you're not interested in ownership rates. No. No, not at all. A house should be like a fridge, basically. In
0: yeah, a house should be like a fridge. People, I mean, look, if people want to own a house, then great, good for them. They should be. You know We should respect people's preferences, but we shouldn't be trying to impose our own preferences on them. I think in the UK people do really like owning houses, um, but it's hard to separate that out from the fact that we have this system that basically makes houses a protected investment class. You know, mm-hmm. It's as if we were saying, you, know, you may not mine any more gold or you may not produce any more fine art. Um, You know, in in that respect, I can see why people um, may may think that houses are a really, really smart investment. Mm -hmm. They're probably wrong about that, but I can see why they might think it is. Um, But housing, home ownership for its own sake seems to me to be bizarre. I mean, why would you want everybody to put all of their investments into a certain asset class? For Mm -hmm. example, you know, imagine if house prices did fall by 30% tomorrow, which they easily could. I mean, not even because of Brexit, just because of randomness, because markets, markets do walk around randomly. Um, you're talking about almost everybody in the country's main investment is their house. Almost everybody in a stroke. It's like everybody invested in Microsoft, or everybody's invested in Amazon. And then, yeah, okay, occasionally companies get massive hits to their value overnight. Um, it seems bizarre to me to make it a policy to try and get everybody correlated into a single asset class. Um, There's also some evidence. Danny Blanchflower has done some empirical evidence that suggests that high home ownership is associated with lower uh, employment or higher unemployment because people find it more difficult to move around to get work. Um, I respect the preference if people want to own houses, but I don't think that we should be trying to shift them towards that. That just seems like a recipe for disaster.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... And what do you... Let's stick with housing because it's so important. What do you um, see as... I mean, if you're... Forget splitting hairs about ownership and Mm. if you broadly think that the the planning system needs to be liberated, um, what do you see as the big political obstacles in Britain and and, and the ways in which you should be trying to overcome those? I mean, do you... uh, Clearly, by far, the biggest problem is that most people, in particular
0: people who are more engaged in the political process, um, own their own house... And have a financial stake in the house not falling in value. So no So everything else we can talk about that people do really like the idea of the green belt. There's you know it's not all selfishness. It's 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 a, there is a sense of kind of yeah. altruism. We we need to protect the green lungs and the environment and so on. <coughs> Never mind the fact that the green belt is not very environmentally beneficial. Right. In fact, it's often very bad for the environment because it's monocultures um, and it's not very very biodiverse. But um, the main thing is just and, and this is kind of the. The, the, I guess, the Gordian knot that you need to cut. Um, so I quite like the work of um, the kind of L- London Yimby, yep. which, which I know you. Capex a, contributor. Yeah, yeah, and um, I think that those guys are really um, thinking about how do you sort of square this problem because it's a classic public choice issue Mm. you know you you, it's a classic problem whereby they will not be the beneficiaries of the thing that everybody else will benefit from so there's a, a much more concentrated interest group even though they're quite large they have a much more concentrated stake in not changing this so some of their proposals are for example kind of street votes so allow um basically radically decentralize the um area where you uh, made the decision mm-hmm. so that the incentives are more closely aligned. You know, so my street votes and then everybody on our street gets really rich because we can you can add a story. Vote, to your we can, yeah, we can we exactly yeah. votes, votes to liberalise planning on our street. And then so suddenly the incentives are much better aligned. Um, or kind of things to do with you know greenbelt land swaps where you know you you take a piece of greenbelt land that we want to build on, we take a bit of land that isn't greenbelt and we just sort of say well, they, now this is protected, right. so we're not netting any less any loss of the green belt. I'm a little bit more brutal. Um, I think I think Yim, the London Yimby are a lot more um, politically realistic. But if I could, I would just press a button and just eliminate all these. I mean, they they will be cringing if they hear me say this because uh, <laughs> you know, of course, a uh, a good solution to this is one where everybody benefits yeah. and people like me will only do harm to the cause of liberalisation. But then again um it's important to be clear this is this is just this is no different to laws protecting certain um trade union workers from competition it's no different to countries protecting their domestic industry from foreign rivals we're enriching a certain class of people in this country quite a well-off class as well at the expense of everybody else and probably at their own expense as well given the innovation and productivity costs so um there are lots of nice, neat solutions to the problem, mm. but um, all of them are second best to just eliminating the problem altogether.
1: It's interesting when you look at the I thing. I've repeated this in a couple of articles on capex, but the um, government has, you know, identified housing as a major problem. Uh, if you look at the terms of the review, Oliver Letwin was commissioned to do on yeah. um, on planning, um, the definition, which is a sort of this is a good nugget. The definition the government's Actually, I had to write down on paper what it thinks the housing crisis is yeah. and what it wants to achieve, yeah. which it doesn't usually do. And um, you know, the definition is basically that it wants house prices to keep rising, but but wages to be rising faster. So the government doesn't even define incredible um, doesn't define house you know doesn't define fixing the housing crisis as like a lower cost of housing. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. it just shows they're all terrified. They're all petrified of of basically NIMBYs. Um, they're all petri- Like you, you talk to any. Member of Parliament, Cabinet ministers—they will not touch this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's as toxic, if not more toxic, than NHS stuff. Than than you know, we're going to do <laughs> great another NHS reform. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that, seemingly, they have they had have had had tried to do that uh, without much success. But nobody wants to touch this because, um, even though people in general do vote in an altruistic or sociotropic way. Um, that effect gets weaker and weaker the more knowledge the voters you're talking about have, basically the more engaged they are with politics and homeowners are particularly engaged Um, and when it comes to kind of local planning meetings and things like that it's just filled with people who've got a lot of time in their hands which are fairly wealthy retirees uh, who own their homes and don't want to see the value of those homes go down. It's really really difficult, um, difficult one to see being fixed electorally Um, I have a little bit more hope for densification within cities Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there are, the benefits are a lot more um, closely tied to the well-being of locals. There's this idea that um, densification is sort of bad for locals, um, and that's really often not true. Because if you densify um, in the right way, then not only is it you know you get these nice buildings and so on if you build mm. them if if they're not really ugly, We um, also get more get stuff more football, to do, you and get more people, food, you restaurants, get more cafes. Whatever. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I have a little bit more hope for that, but you're still talking about quite small floor spaces, mm-hmm. um, and it's quite a grim one. It's a, it's a very sad one. Really. So
1: let's let's move to another uh, on your list, another another very toxic political issue, which is arguably more toxic, uh, immigration. And it seems to me that on, this is the subject probably on which the neoliberal view is kind of most sort of. Yeah. Out of fashion at the moment. Yeah. Uh, and the biggest uphill battle in terms of um, if, there's, if there's anything that would unite um, economically very left-wing people and economically very right-wing people in, in opposition to, to, to your position, yeah, um, it would be on this subject more than any other.
0: Yeah. And it's strange because um, people who are economically on the right say that they're in favor of free trade. Um, so they're in favor of um, trading with people in Indonesia. Um, they think that makes everybody richer. But suddenly, when that person that we were trading with is no longer in Indonesia, but is now somewhere in the UK, suddenly they think it makes us less less rich, and there is no logic to it at all. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a you can make a fringe argument if you um, if you agree with the idea that certain sections of society are made worse off by trade. Um, Some people also think that certain sections of society are made worse off by immigration. Right. I don't think is I I think it's at the most a very very small detriment. Um, You know, in the order of maybe ten or twenty pounds a year. Um, which even at that level of income is a pretty small amount of money. Um, But even then, uh, nobody really thinks, who, who I think is serious about this, that immigration makes us worse off overall economically. So then you get into kind of cultural arguments, right?
1: But Which I think is where the battle is really. I don't but think weirdly,
0: I mean, this is—I think that there's kind of a weird disconnect between elites and the way elites debate, uh, and I include people like Nigel Farage. I just mean people who are like highly engaged in politics. Right. The way they talk about immigration and the way most people think about immigration. Um, I think it's that people who are highly engaged kind of know that they're really on hiding to nothing if they're, argu- if they're making an economic argument. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, mo- the ones who do are like very, very, uh, they're, they're, they're people who basically say it in very loose terms because they know that they're going to get nailed for it. They know right. they don't have much evidence for it. They, the, who made this economic argument? Um, but that's the thing that most people care about. And when you, when you poll, I mean, Ipsos Mori polled people who, want, who, who said that they wanted to reduce immigration to the UK. And by far, the the biggest responses as to kind of why they want less immigration are um, the effect on jobs and wages, the effect on public services, uh, the fact that we're full up, quote, you know, quote, unquote, full up, Mm -hmm. uh, which I would say is like a housing issue, probably, for the most Mm -hmm. part, maybe some kind of road congestion. Um, And only 4% of respondents uh, when they they could name two they could name two things only four percent of respondents said well they're not integrating properly and so on mm-hmm. it's a very very I think um, among kind of the masses uh, a secondary thing to this concern about income and public services and so on that's not to say that it's not a reasonable objection but it's I don't think it's the dominant
1: but, one. But so do you, in that sense, do you think that um, your camp, you know, your view is not as politically hopeless as as many assume oh, I think and it's, it's just I not think being it's made. made you think because it I think possible. it's
0: hopeless to convince people that um, immigration doesn't I mean it's not hopeless. It's not hopeless. I think but it's, 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 very whole hard, battle. it's very hard to convince people that immigration doesn't harm doesn't harm um your, in, your income or your job. Um, it's very difficult to why, why why should that be the case then? Mm. Because they can see immigrants competing with them. Uh, they can't quite as well see immigrants consuming services that, that cause them to um, have a new job mm-hmm. you can see somebody from lithuania going for that job at, at whatever at some shop that you want to work in right. and them getting it and then you don't get it and then a, three, a few weeks later when you do get another job you can't see that that person from lithuania has spent a couple of pounds along with you know a thousand other people to create that job um it's it, you know you can't people don't see the um people who are put out of work by machinery you know imagine if immigrants didn't consume services they'd be like a kind of machine they, re, they would basically be a kind of Uh, efficiency generating machine Mm -hmm. people very often are very concerned about automation and the kind of costs of automation because it does you can see it destroys jobs Mm -hmm. of course it destroys jobs they don't see very well that we we are very good at also thinking of other jobs for them to do and often because we've got more money now we can spend more money on you um that's a much harder thing to to, it's the seen versus unseen thing well
1: that's i I was going to say that's a problem for (laughs) that's just a problem for anyone making the case for the market in general isn't it i mean that's just what we're all kind of and, and then, yeah,
0: and and immigration does come with. Um, there does seem to be a. Uh, and, I mean, I can you can speculate as to why this would be, but there is generally a kind of suspicion or, um, I guess, anxiety about rapid change. Um, people, I guess, have internalized the idea that you can't stop technology. That mm-hmm. like it's just never a good idea to stop technology. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in the future we'll, we'll
1: realize that it's never a good idea to stop kind of movement of labor but um but what about some of the what about some of the sort of mitigating policies so i mean you have if you have a free market in labor and a flexible labor force um but you don't have a free market in very very important public goods like education and healthcare and so on i mean what about the what about the claim that you know, if you're centrally planning half of that, yeah. You, you know, you do need to do something about how many school places you're going to need in Birmingham next year versus in Bolton in three years' time. You know, is that something that there's sort of room for in your approach to...
0: Sure. Yeah, sure. I don't think there's any need to be absolutist about any of this. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of cause prioritization is very important. If you're... I consider myself to be very extreme in my views, but also quite pragmatic. And I think most neoliberals may have very far-out views about certain things, but most of us tend to be quite pragmatic about prioritizing the ones that are really important, bargaining with people on the ones that are less important. When it comes to um, public services like that, there is an argument, I think, that the government isn't very good at adjusting where the money is spent. Mm. Um, you know, so we may have this extra money coming in from these extra immigrants because they tend to pay more in than they could take out. But if we're not spending it in the areas that they've gone... Then that's a that's a pity. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, there used to be, I think, a migration impact fund that the conservative coalition government abolished. Um, so that doesn't that doesn't help. Um, <laughs> if if this is the yeah, yeah. If this is the actual yeah. um, way of doing this, but um, I mean, fundamentally, I think housing is probably the area where this is the the biggest actual cost. Right. Because if housing if the housing stock is um, very very. Uh, tightly restricted. Then, of course, at the margin, more people coming in um, is going to have a is going to basically drive up the price of the housing. Um, uh, as uh, it happens, most of that rise in housing stock has been because of incomes rising. Well, well, it well, just incomes rising. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah The, yeah, the yeah, reason sure. it's you know we're spending more in real terms because we're earning more in real right. terms, and it shouldn't be like that. We're not spending more on like ham sandwiches. Mm. Um, you know yeah, the, yeah. the other things that we spend more on are where they're very labour intensive, and houses aren't. Particularly labour-intensive compared mm-hmm. to you know a car or um, a ham sandwich, for example. But um,
1: yeah. So I presume, I mean, <clears throat> if you were being tactical as a neoliberal, yeah. housing is this thing that you should be putting your yeah, I think, heart and soul into absolutely. winning the argument on.
0: Yeah, I think housing above everything else because so many other things suddenly becoming because a you would have a massive increase in economic growth. You know, you'd have several, I would say, several percentage points at least. Um, I mean, you would have at least a percentage point from the extra uh, in total, not per year. Yeah. Um, from the extra building, you know, because yeah, there's yeah. a huge amount of demand. As well and, as all the productivity we'd gains certainly and... be spending all this money, and we'd be producing all this wealth. Yeah. Um, which would be which would be very nice. But then, from the extra productivity effects, it's we don't really have good estimates in the UK about how much more productive we would get. But you can you can bet that with more people being able to move to Cambridge, for example, mm-hmm. I mean, to put to put the pen. It also demand, makes it also
1: makes. Um, it's also where people move from. I mean, it makes things cheaper there too, right? Yeah. So you can, yeah. you can allocate resources. It's, it's at both ends of the Absolutely, uh, yeah.
0: So I think and so the, so the extra money and the extra wealth that would be created, just it's always easier for governments to do other things when you've got that extra money. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, so many of these issues where, because of this silly rule that we've got, they actually are zero-sum, or they're, they're much closer to being zero-sum than they should be. It should become uh, a little bit more easy to resolve. So, yeah, I would say housing above everything else.
1: And uh, let's talk about some practical politics in a different way. Um, we are recording this shortly after the creation mm-hmm. of the Independent Group, a, oh, new, yeah. a new block of MPs, yeah. uh, that are not yet a party, but presumably will be a sort of centrist party. Um, firstly, you know, well, first we talk about the word centrism, but also, you know, what is the sort of neoliberal... Is there any neoliberal opportunity in, the, in, this, new, in this new block... I have to say I'm a little bit
0: more interested than, um, than I think most people are because I, I agree with Dr. Steve Davies, who has written and for a very long time has sort of predicted this realignment in Western politics um, where instead of the kind of dividing line being economically left versus, versus economically right – and kind of everything else, it doesn't really matter what your other views are unless you're really strong on certain issues. If you're, left, if you're left-wing economically, you'll probably be a, a fan of the Labour side. And if you're right-wing economically, you'll probably be a fan of the Conservative side. But it looks in lots and lots of countries like Poland and France and Italy, Hungary, um, America, I'm afraid to say, it looks as if the dividing line, and many people have observed this, is c- coming to more be kind of cosmopolitanism mm-hmm. versus sort of national identity.
1: And we've done we've done a lot of polling at CapEx <clears throat> on lots of economic questions, yeah. and you basically realise that they're all just it's all just a proxy for cultural values. Yeah. no one actually really cares about. Yeah, of, depressingly, and no I mean, one cares about any yeah, other stuff. And so, stuff.
0: and so, I think that what, what what Steve has predicted is that, and, and he predicted this ten years mm-hmm. ago. You know, he's been predicting this for a very long time. Is that if this becomes the salient division then we'll get a realignment and instead of necessarily left and right being the main dividing lines it'll be identitarianism versus cosmopolitanism mm-hmm. now I and I think it's almost a definitional feature of a neoliberal this is the sort of globalist point yeah. that I was talking about um, I'm a cosmopolitan and I don't like people who, who think that we should give more more well you know more weighting to the welfare of people who are ident- who are kind of part of the same race or nationality right. or whatever as we as we are So if what's happening in the UK is similar to what's happened in France, for example, uh, or Poland, for example, then um, it could be that the division is kind of inevitably going to be a very strong identitarian party and then the cosmopolitan party. And then the question is, which one is going to be economically right-wing, if maybe that'll be the secondary issue, Mm. um, and which is going to be economically left It's not obvious to me that identitarianism goes very well with economic liberalism. Right. Identitarianism seems to be very protectionist, seems to be very, very um, anti-economic uh, change and anti- um, the kind of things that liberals of all kinds are quite comfortable with. Mm-hmm. In that case, then maybe the cosmopolitan side is either going to be radical left and cosmopolitan, and then in which case liberals are just screwed. <laughs> or maybe it could be cosmopolitan and economically liberal. Um, and in France and Poland, that seems to be what's happened, uh, with varying degrees of success. M- not so much at the moment, yeah. but but more so than in somewhere like Hungary, for example. Um, in that case, I'm not that optimistic about the independent group, the independence group in particular, because they're not very uh, they're appealing to me as politicians. I, yeah. I like Anna Subri, I have to say. I think she's a very uh, interesting and kind of uh, I, I admire her uh, intellect, really. Um, but it's intriguing and it's, yeah. i think people are kind of misjudging what's going on it isn't primarily i think an anti-corbyn thing i think it's an anti-identitarianism thing um and and we'll see there might be some there might be something to it
1: but on, on that point i think one of the interesting questions for neoliberals or well, not for lots of people but you know lots of people that are in your camp are the same are sort of people who would say that they are pro-market, but they're socially liberal. Yeah. And it seems to be one of the difficult questions in politics at the moment, and one of the things that is sort of... Basically, you can still get away with saying socially liberal, whereas actually, that doesn't necessarily mean that much anymore. Almost everybody's Uh, socially liberal. Right. As in, I mean, socially liberal, like 25 years ago, meant something because it meant you were probably in favor of certain laws changing to do with gay marriage or, or, or whatever. Yeah. But if you're in the cosmopolitan or socially liberal camp i mean there are some people would say that sticking up for cosmopolitanism in certain ways involves illiberal things to do with free speech or you know it's not clear that some of the trans stuff is like a, is it the same as yeah, gay marriage and yeah you know there are these difficult questions where how do you how do you apply the kind of neoliberal kind of Framework to the to these social questions, yeah. rather than just saying I'm socially liberal, <laughs> which is what I, I mean. A lot of people yeah. I would do the same, but you know, I, I
0: I think that social conservatism is basically dead. I think that only very very strange people are mm-hmm. passionate social conservative C states, I don't have any problem with. So I don't I don't mean to say that they're strange as people, but they're kind of fringe. They're they're fringe uh, people on what in whatever mm-hmm. party they're in, uh, or whatever grouping they're in. I think social liberalism and social conservatism are no longer relevant. In the same way that That identity and cosmopolitanism weren't that relevant maybe 30 years ago or were much less relevant 30 years ago. Unfortunately, I think you're right. It's not clear to me that um, on the issues you've mentioned, like being able to, um, I guess, criticize uh, certain elements of the kind of trans movement Mm -hmm. without being told off by a police officer. It's not clear to me at all that cosmopolitanism fits very well with social liberalism in mm. that way or maybe um when it comes to kind of personal uh, consumption like smoking or drinking or the nanny state in general it's not clear to me at all that cosmopolitans even cosmopolitans who are quite social economically liberal mm. are particularly liberal in that sense which is a real shame i'm very sad yeah. about that but <clears throat> <I clears throat> excuse me but actually um maybe there is a kind of call to action for neoliberals um, i 'm increasingly beginning to think that left liberals and right liberals are going to have to team up because um, there 's a much bigger enemy there 's a much bigger threat, which is this identity uh, kind of trump uh, orban style identity mm-hmm. um, national identity kind of movement in which case we 're going to have to make compromises. Um, neoliberals will need to be figure out where 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 can we make common cause with left liberals i think housing is one where absolutely we can make common cause with left liberals i think left liberals of all other groups are likely to be the most open to changing the rules that we have around the Green belt and densification and i think that could be that kind of yimby thing could be the genesis of of a kind of a, i guess a kind mm-hmm. of combined movement but maybe we're just not going to be able to win on um on other things uh, i wouldn't i will never give up my kind of hardcore social liberalism and my kind of extreme individual liberty. People Mm. should be able to smoke crack if they want to. Um, But but I'm not convinced there's any political... Uh, grouping where that's gonna be where that's gonna go down well. And I mean I'm I'm sad because I get so personally annoyed by like the sugar tax. Sugar tax drives me absolutely I'm, nothing brings out my inner libertarian like <laughs> uh, the sugar tax because I like drinking so I'm, I'm very clearly I'm showing my my privilege, but I like drinking the San Pellegrino. Then they've uh, changed the recipe. And they've changed the recipe and it's undrinkable. It's vile. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and that's a real cost. They've just made the world worse by doing that. You know, if you wanted to, if there was demand for this, it would have been provided already. But they just made the world worse. Right. Um, but sadly, I'm not convinced there is a political grouping. Or maybe if there is, I'm not sure I'd be willing to be part of the identitarian side. The price because, is too high, basically. Yeah, exactly. In I'm not sure I'd be willing to be part of the identitarians just because they're li- more liberal on being able to attack trans people than um, the other side.
1: Right. <clears throat> well, let's let's talk about one. Um Vague alliance that still still mm. exists, which is the which is the sort of pro market yeah. group, which includes neoliberals, quite a lot, quite a lot, but not all conservatives yeah. and um, libertarians certainly. And I'm, I'm just interested in your thoughts broadly on uh, you know, And this, I ask this as someone who edits a website, yeah. interested in these questions. But what do you think? We you know clearly we're not doing a great job in this argument at the moment. Yeah. I mean, if you look at any poll about attitudes to capitalism or the market or uh, or even substantive questions, you know, especially among younger voters, it's not a, like a pr- particularly nice read. Yeah. So what do you, what sort of advice do you have for people like you sort of trying to persuade people of some of the merits of these, uh, of the system we have, or at least the system we, we could have if we used the market yeah. properly? Um, I know that's a very big question by the,
0: I guess I'd first say, um, I think it's interesting to see how Libertarians, conservatives, and neoliberals are fracturing um, in terms of the issues that they care about, the ones that they think are important. For one, the uh, their stances on particular issues and on their approach to kind of tactics. And so, libertarians seem to think that it's really good to attack big business. They think that um, it 's like very popular. They, they clearly can see that it 's popular to attack big business, mm. and a lot of libertarians seem to think that like, a good way of winning people over to libertarianism is by saying, "Yes, I too dislike big business yes. it 's all crony capitalism right. and, and so on. You Neoliberals, know, I think generally do not think that. Right. Um, I think conservatives are a little bit more hairy about that as well. Conservatives seem to really, really value no tariffs um, and but but seem to kind of care much less about. Um, the ease of trade in other respects mm-hmm. uh, whereas libertarians and neoliberals I think are and libertarians are a bit kind of up for grabs there but neoliberals are much more kind of single market is very good yep. and it, it's worth if, if we had to stay less into, interested in yeah, sacrificing in worrying about sovereignty have, if we you know, yeah or, or, or even or just but even let's just say the question is for single market versus uh, leaving the customs union yep. most neoliberals I would say would think the kind of deep integration of the single market is, is if we had to Worth staying in the customs union. It would be mm. nice to have, uh, possibly neither. But it would be nice not to leave the single market and also to, yeah. not, uh, to be able to have no tr- no tariffs with anybody. But the forum is more important. Um, so I think there's like lots of different interesting divisions that are kind of going on, and lots of interesting um, kind of. And I think kind of conservatives tend to be extremely uh, anxious at the moment about economic change um, and extremely suspicious of tech firms in particular. Um, which you don't really get with libertarians or neoliberals. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually wonder if that might end up, if if conservative anxiety about big tech might end up being the thing that ultimately drives conservatives away from the free market movement or vice versa altogether, because I think that that's going to become bigger and bigger and bigger of an issue. And if the solution, as most conservatives seem to think, or many, is like break up big tech then most free marketeers are not going to be on board with that mm. and, and are not going to want to stick around for that, I think, given how important technology is and the technology sector is. Um, with, that, that, with that all said, it's, it's not obvious to me that there is a sort of common um, free market movement or whether mm. there will be a common free market movement in 10 years' time um, because it may be that the really important issues, uh, not, not to do with identity but around economics, are things that we can't really agree on and things that we're constantly right, sniping right. at each other about. Although I hope we all stay friends because uh, <laughs> it's good to, it's good to kind of have, have allies even if you don't agree on everything. Um, I'm not completely convinced that we're that it's hopeless to convince people uh, you know we we have just lived through ten years of not quite stagnation, but something like it, um, mm. especially in the u k mm. um, It's not obvious to somebody who who doesn't have deep opinions and deep priors that are pro pro market. That markets or the system that we've got are are that good. Um, hopefully, that will change. I, I kind of have to just hope that the fundamentals of the economy shift.
1: Um, it's just a sort of proof is in the pudding point. Yeah, as it is.
0: yeah. I think that most people just don't pay enough attention to either side, and they 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 take very very ad hoc judgments based on the kind of state of the economy, their own jobs, their own neighbourhood, and so on. And right now, for most people, those things are not looking that great. Um, so. How can you blame them for not liking the which, system that we've got? Which is
1: why it all comes back to housing yet again, if only we did something about like that. Perhaps we it does,
0: yeah, maybe it <laughs> does. Although all those people who own houses... Hopefully they'll lose out. I mean in my in my perfect world, and I apologize to the Yimbies, I don't speak on their behalf. I'm I'm the extreme radical, but they are right. um, they're they're keeping extreme radicals like me out of the A this safe space. distance from yeah, themselves. yeah they're 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 making sure I have no influence on every on anything to do with housing. But um, I would love for people who own their houses to take a thirty percent or forty percent hit to their finances, and I would love for from the value of their house dropping, and I would love for everybody to realise that it's really silly to put all your money into your house. It's really silly. You might as well put all your money into a casino or all your money into a single stock. If you think those two things are silly, you shouldn't put all your money into a house. Um, And I would love for people to get that lesson um, as uncomfortable for them as it might be. It would be very nice for everybody else.
1: That was Sam Bowman on neoliberalism. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.